This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This week's episode is a live recording we did at City Lit Books in the Logan Square neighborhood right here in Chicago, my city, and it features a wide cast of characters. Since this was a live event, there are introductions right within the audio, but as a brief recap, this episode features Josiah Hessa, who is the author of the Carnality series, a wonderful psychological horror book series. The books are very good, and I talked to him about them in the final segment of the show. Before that segment, though, we hear from Alessandro Ragusen and Ryan Connell, two writers that have been touring with Josiah for a couple of months as a part of their unapologetics tour. You can find out more about all of them in the show notes. We were also joined in the final segment by special guest Chris Stroop. Also, I want to mention that it's been officially announced that CBS Religion will be featuring Exvangelical in an upcoming documentary set to air on December 2nd of this year, 2018. So you may see some footage from this event there as well. So please be sure to check that out. If you're a cord cutter, I have been told that it will be available as streaming as well. As always, you can find me on Twitter at BRChastain. Follow the show at Pod on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And join the Facebook group by searching for Exvangelical. You can also support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash Pod. And I want to thank everyone that came out to this event. We hope to have more in the future. One quick audio note. This was a live event. And at live events, unexpected or unforeseen things happen. We had audio recording, but no amplification. It was a small, intimate venue, so we didn't really need it. And there was some crackling of microphones and mic cords that we didn't hear as a result as we were recording. I hope it doesn't prove too too distracting for you, but for those who've given me lower star ratings on Apple Podcasts for audio quality, this is my caveat slash apology in regards to that. Live events are a new thing for me. Um, and I am learning on my feet and as I go here. So apologies for some of that quality there, but I think that overall it is good and the content, of course, is great. So let's get right into it. on record this is kind of a pretentious microphone because there's not actually any amplification (laughs) but (laughs) 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 Uh, and that was such an awesome introduction I I, uh, I don't know quite what else there is to say Um, well uh, the the apologetics tour that um, I've been doing with my friends Ryan and Alessandra uh, my former fundamentalist buddies from Denver kind of started as just going on a book tour to release uh, Carnality 2, but those are often l- lonely and quite boring events, and I wanted to travel with my friends, but also work on this project where we kind of revisit a lot of the evangelical touchstones from our childhood and do these interviews with other exvangelicals to kind of share our stories, hear their stories, commiserate, validate, 
each other. Um, so much of this community, which has been absolutely wonderful, has been built up online, uh, which gives us so much uh, strength and solidarity, but it also, you know, is uh, can be a little combative and divisive at times, especially <laughs> when dealing with something like theology and sexuality. <laughs> so doing events like this, you know, where we're all hanging out face to face is uh, so important and so cathartic, but then also visiting the um, the mementos, the, the horrors of our childhoods uh, was also cathartic. We went to Branson, Missouri to see uh, Jim Baker's compound uh, with all his survivalist gear and the Spanish rice buckets. Uh, we went to Nashville to interview Kevin Max of DC Talk. Um, and where else? We were in New Orleans. We, we were at Paula White's church in uh, Orlando. Um, we went up to New York and interviewed Linda K. Klein, whose recent book, uh, Pure, about the purity culture, has been an incredibly uh, rewarding experience. Uh, I think rewarding is quite the wrong word, actually. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's been very helpful in the process of just kind of figuring out what it was we grew up in and how it affected us and how it stays with us to this day. And it's been such um, a wonderful experience for me to travel with my friends and get to hear them read their literature and not make this just all about me and, and my book. Um, and I'm so excited to uh, bring uh, the first uh, reader of the night to the stage. You can see her work at uh, my Green World blog. Green World Writing, I'm sorry. <laughs> Please welcome uh, my friend, Alessandra Ragusin. I'm supposed to talk to you all about the devil tonight to tell you why he's not such a bad guy, but no. Tonight I'm going off book because I don't have time to talk to you all about fiction. I no longer have time to offer you an escape, so I said, instead, I come to you with a call to action. Heads up, there's a blanket trigger warning on this whole speech for just about anything and everything you can think of, so if you need to leave, I understand. Otherwise, buckle up with me. I am enraged and filled with pain, but I can no longer use only words when action is so necessary. I have a deep fire in me, and now I open it to the oxygen beyond my lungs in the desperate hope that it will catch and find its way to you and fill you with a blaze of justice and truth because we are out of time and status updates and memes and isolation will not do. We are living under the rule of unabashed, unashamed, rapists, racists, and fascists. I wish I could say I am surprised by current events, but the state of the world has been a long time coming. When we treat patriarchy and sexism and racism and classism as harmless, we allow it to take root and to grow. We have before us a planet and a nation covered in poisonous thorns and we have yelped and screamed, but now it is time to remove them from our sides and from our paws and set fire to it all. I know when I speak of patriarchy and sexism, racism, classism, many roll their eyes. See, the tools of the patriarchy are clever and near invisible. Abusers and oppressors have the skill of taking the language of the abused and the oppressed and the language of goodness and perverting them for their own gain, personal, political, and monetary. Take self-care, for example. As Audre Lorde told us, self-care is a radical act. But how often are we told that it's a shopping spree or an expensive spa day or a luxury car? In seconds, what was a radical act has become capitalism standard. 
I'm not here to define your self-care, but I am here to tell us all that we should be wary of any system that tells us our mental, physical, and spiritual health is to be bought and that it is a commodity. Health should have no price tag, and anyone who tries to sell us our peace of mind is a crook. There is the obvious patriarchy we can see, and then the even more terrifying patriarchy that hides in plain sight. I have been raped four times in the past seven years. Once was by a man who claimed he didn't know it was wrong to pin me down in a park and rip me in half. But even worse than that were the other three times. All three rapes were committed by people who were my friends. Both men claimed and professed to be feminists, to be allies, to be progressive, to be woke. They use the language, they look the part. There are people who put on the skin of feminism, but who harbor misogyny and dominion in their hearts. And I am overwrought with horror by the ease with which these people vomit up the words of love and then turn around and treat women like jizz rags and minorities and other marginalized people as the butt of jokes, as worthy of degradation and violence. The work of feminism, the work of love, the work of justice is painful and jarring and demolishes the long dominating ways of our present and past. And it is no wonder that so many run from it. But there will be pain in life no matter which way we go. So why not make our pain something worthwhile and fruitful? Why not do what we can to lessen the severity of the sorrow around us? Why not make each other's lives that much less shitty and maybe even occasionally good? Why hurt and mock and murder and rape and torture? Why? We should all dedicate ourselves to lives of fierce examination, unrelenting growth in the pursuit and practice of love as a radical choice that dismantles and disrupts and bolsters and affirms. The cracks in the foundation of the patriarchy are deep and wide and the patriarchy will do whatever it takes to fill the gaps and cling with bloody fingers to the crumbling facade. We are a storm. We are a tsunami force raging toward the shore in the scaffolding of white supremacy, of sexism, classism, homophobia, Christian dominionism, manipulation, abuse. All the pillars of the patriarchy will not hold. I am here to bear witness and to share not just my experience, for I come to the table loaded with privilege, but also the ways in which I have witnessed oppression being enacted upon others. My best friend is black and Thai. She was called the N-word as she walked through the park alone, and no one thought twice about it. Many have witnessed things like this happen and have never stopped to help or speak up. I know I have, because we have made gross negligence and degradation and paralytic anxiety an acceptable part of everyday life. We witnessed babies and children gunned down in their classrooms because a fragile white man felt unfairly rejected when he thought he deserved sex. We have seen queers gunned down in clubs and on the street by men who see homosexuality as icky, as something to be annihilated, as a threat. There are babies and children still alone in detention centers, and just because these centers aren't the con concentration camps of the Holocaust does not mean that they aren't hell. We listen to critics, critics asking why survivors of rape and sexual assault don't come forward sooner, and in the next breath, they elect those rapists and assaulters to the presidency and the Supreme Court. Police execute black people in broad daylight on camera and are allowed to go free. Young men of color are held to the standards of adults while young white men are treated like precious baby boys. I am queer and I have had enough of hearing abuse is a necessary part of my existence. 
I remember walking alone at night in downtown Tulsa when a truck full of young white men slowed down to yell, hey, faggot, at me and then speed off. I was told I shouldn't worry. They're just being assholes. They wouldn't do anything, but they do. Time and time again, these people hollering slurs in the streets do act out further. I am exhausted and furious and tired of hearing stories of trans and people of color and queer and female and all marginalized or minority peoples and children being slaughtered in our streets, in their homes, in their schools. The loudest voices seem to be those defending the murderers and butchers and attackers, but now when we hear them whine and throw pity parties for themselves, we must sing so loudly that we drown them out and they retreat. We must do better. When we see injustice happening, we cannot allow the anxiety to paralyze us, but we must use it to drive us to action. Speak up and act. Walk people home. Stay with someone if they seem scared or alone. Listen to your intuition and jump into action when you see a woozy or delirious woman at the bar or when someone is yelling slurs or posturing aggressively. The best way to alleviate our hesitation over sharing our pain is to know that someone has our back. To know that when we fall or are forced down, someone will be there to lift us on their shoulders and carry us until we're a little stronger. To know that we would show this same fierce compassion to others. To know this isn't about gods or devils, it's about human beings. Be a fucking killjoy because there should be no joy in the subjugation and violation of human beings. Guard each other, take care of each other, show compassion to each other, shut up and listen to each other. If we have privilege, we must no longer use it to advance our continued narrative of dominance and ignorance, but we must use it to raise up others and give platforms from which to preach. Share with each other, share everything, our skills, time, money, food, homes, clothes, talents, passions, everything. We have made islands of ourselves, and it is time to build bridges, not walls or fences. Regardless of what you believe comes next, it would be a shame to spend this life in bitterness and agony and hate. I know we all have great anxiety over our futures and what to do about them. I often wonder, what can I do? How can I help? I have nothing to give. I have no resources, and this sea of possibility is endless. But I sat down and brainstormed some ideas because now is the time for action, and I'd like to share them with you. Former Republican Representative Michelle Bachman said, to help people, we need wealth but I offer this list as an alternative because we are more powerful than money. It is easier and simpler to help people than we have been taught or led to believe. Step one, why not cook up a crock pot full of chili or soup and sit outside and offer it to everyone who goes by? Feed the community, learn who your neighbors are. If you have training in fitness or self-defense, set up free self-defense classes in the park to teach basic ways to fight back and defend and intervene. If you're academically minded or passionate about teaching, join a free tutoring program and teach people how to read or do math or whatever it is. Turn your yard into a garden and share the extra from your harvest with those who have limited means to feed themselves. Offer to teach them how to grow their own gardens. Lend books, host discussion groups. There's no time for elitism and the best way to spread knowledge and creativity is through reading and discussion and education. If you're gifted in finance, take a few hours to make a flyer on basic personal finance for people who don't have access to things like that. If you have experience with the legal system, consider typing up a Know Your Rights pamphlet to distribute for free around your neighborhood, community, and city, and a pamphlet on where and how to find inexpensive or free legal help. 
If you have a car, offer people rides everywhere to interviews, the grocery store, the bank, the library, parks and open spaces, to meetings and classes and marches and protests. Record and share the stories of people around you. Begin to share the stories of those outside the dominant narrative and let others have a voice for once. Make art and make art with fury and meaning and purpose and power. Teach classes about menstruation to clueless men. Teach comprehensive sex ed. Volunteer at Planned Parenthood and educate people about what they actually do. Volunteer to escort people through the crowds of hatred and through the front door. Teach people to not fear and hate, but love and respect and understand their bodies and the bodies of others. Do the work of educating yourself. Have the difficult conversations. Ask and explore the painful and difficult questions. Don't run from struggle, but meet it head on. Utilize free spaces like parks, libraries, schools, homes, because you don't need money to be of use. If you have two good sweatshirts, give one away to someone living on the street, not to a faceless organization, but put the things directly into the hands of, those that, of the people that need them. Volunteer at shelters. Offer free resume building classes and workshops. Organize clothing, sleeping, food drives in your neighborhood, and then take these items straight to the streets. Just do something good. Now it's time to prove our mettle and not just show our teeth, but sink them into the meat, into the work. Maya Angelou said that times like these are precisely when artists get to work. And I would add that we are brokenhearted people living in the world of grief, and we know there is an answer, and it is to not just let it be. You may hear me and rightfully assume I am calling out Republicans, conservatives, evangelicals, white nationalists, but I am also furious at the behavior of liberals and Democrats and so-called progressives. I am appalled by anyone who claims the ideals of social justice and then only tweaks the message of the patriarchy from atop their hoard of wealth while waiting for commands by corporations who measure the value of life in dollar signs. Don't be fooled by it. We have celebrities telling us how we should vote when they have more than enough money to solve the Flint water crisis, more than enough money and power to restore Puerto Rico, more than enough money to create and implement universal health care. The wealthy of the world have enough money to solve the global food and climate crises, but they don't. Instead, they tell us to use a new thermostat or unplug our electronics, carpool, while they accumulate more and more and watch and laugh at our death. Give the money back to the people because we are in the trenches every day and we have not lost touch. Head to the polls this November, but know that the two-party system that created and supports this circus won't have anything or won't do anything of any real value to put a new, better place in order. It's time for a true government of the people, by the people, for the people. The system of patriarchy has us operate in binaries, but as there is so much more than black and white, red or blue, either or in life, then so must there be in our government. Revolution does not mean simply a new president or a blue wave, but it means an entire system of change. Revolution is not a new hashtag or an occasional march, but it is the daily practice of subverting the norm. It is the daily practice of feeding and clothing and caring for and carrying our neighbors. And let me tell you now that every human is your neighbor. When we believe that revolutions can only be carried out by politicians and money, then we are feeding back into the system that created all of these problems in the first place. A revolution must be free and access accessible to all, and if it is not, then it is false. And when we come to a revolution, we must come authentically and ready to serve and ready to work where needed, or we must do the raw and hard work to change our hearts before we start. Revolution is not just going to exceptionally loud protests and marches every few months. 
Revolution must also be in how we treat each other and subvert the system in our day to day. It doesn't matter if we yell and scream for two hours, if we then revert to our mindless habits as soon as we leave. We need both. We need disruption in the streets and camaraderie in action in our communities. And I know we're tired, but as a group, we can find the energy to continue in ways individuals never do. Let us join in action because there's room for everyone in the cause. We are fellow travelers through this collective experience of life. We are in this together, and the more we infight among ourselves, the less time and energy we have to take up the cause and fight those laughing at us from penthouses and churches and yachts and government halls. Our problem is not with each other. It is, those with, it is with those who oppress and continue to abuse. And we are so much stronger when we come together, when we make a net to catch our friends as they fall and a tidal wave to tear down scaffolding and walls. Audra said the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house and we cannot come to the master with money and greed, but we must come with love as we know it, not love as we've been told. We need a change of heart and we need to dig up the weeds from their roots and plant something new and good. We are a storm that is coming into port and if the infrastructure cannot hold against our waves and deserves to be destroyed. God, I didn't know that's uh, what she was going to read. They, they have this thing about not telling me what they're going <laughs> to read. And I get hit with this emotional tidal wave and have to jump back on stage afterwards. But thank you, Alessandra. That was so brave and so beautiful. Um, yeah, so um, these, uh, these events, this evangelical community has been such a source of inspiration for me. And the reason I chose to... Um, put my stories or, or to create a story that was fiction is because I wanted to assemble as many um, stories as I could from all the people that I'd heard who'd grown up in similar environments uh, as I did. And um, before I bring up uh, the next uh, author, I want to show you a quick uh, video trailer of the first book. Um, and this really deals with the kind of parental environment that a lot of us grew up in, those of us who weren't converts to Christianity or evangelical Christianity who were born into it, I think our um, parent stories are so uh, integral to that narrative. And so with the first carnality book, I wanted to tell the story of uh, two hippies growing up in the Jesus movement of the 70s. And it was a big excuse to write about the Jesus movement of the 70s, which I'm kind of obsessed with. Because if you don't know, it was uh, a pretty big piece of American pop culture that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. So um, if we could hit those lights, uh, we'll uh, check out this trailer. I don't remember how I arrived at this abandoned island hotel. The only way to remember it is to write my story, starting at the beginning with my parents in 1967. They fell in love at the Monterey Pop Festival in California. She was a wild teenager with an attachment disorder, and he was a hitchhiker orphan from Iowa. When a bad trip landed my dad in the arms of an evangelical minister, he was converted and became a leader of the Jesus Freak movement. Born in the ashes of the flower power scene that swept California in the late 1960s, the Jesus Freaks dressed, spoke, and lived just like the other hippies. 
but had traded in the Timothy Leary message of peace through acid for the Billy Graham rhetoric of salvation through Jesus Christ, seasoned with a bit of doomsday prophecies and conspiracy theory paranoia. This soon swept the nation, creating an industry of Christian rock bands that saw the conversion of Bob Dylan. In the book of Daniel and in the book, in the book of Revelation, which just might apply to these times here. And made this end times prophecy into the best-selling non-fiction book of the decade, as well as a movie starring Orson Welles. Is our planet truly in mortal peril? Everywhere Christian hippies were preparing for the great battle of Armageddon, where the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the Antichrist, and the decision of whether or not to receive the mark of the beast would determine their eternal fate in the afterlife. By the time I was born into this apocalyptic nightmare, my mother had sunk into a deep depression, and my father's schizophrenia had become fused with the mad rhetoric of these doomsday prophets. In 1982, he moved our family to an isolated farm in rural Iowa, where we would wait out the wars, famine, and pestilence of the coming tribulation. It was here, raised in the shadow of my father's madness, that I would learn to fear the outside world, to survive the collapse of society, and desperately pray to be spared from the eternal flames of hell. It was here that my journey began. And available at your local bookstore. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, some fiction, some my experience. Uh, growing up in the Pentecostal world of Assemblies of God Church, uh, we got a lot of that doomsday rhetoric uh, throughout the 80s and 90s. And... The next author that I'm going to bring up onto the stage grew up in the same environment and uh, knows more about it than anyone I know. Uh, you can check out his writing at Holy Apostate, and he's been on the road for, net, what now, eight months? Uh, vis yeah, visiting all kinds of uh, evangelical touchstones and interviewing ex-evangelicals all over the country. Uh, please welcome to the stage, Ryan Connell. Hey. How, how are y'all? Doing good? God damn. That was like, I feel like we're having church tonight, but like, like in the good way where like people say things that matter and are of substance and make you think and not just, not just metaphors, you know? Uh, we've been playing a game on the road called The Holy Spirit Spoke to Me where you just like, you know, it was like, and one of my shoes was wet because I left it out in the rain and then the Holy Spirit spoke to me about how you need to be prepared. You know, it's just like, that's all. <laughs> good to hear. <clears throat> Here's a thing that I wrote. <clears throat> if there's one good thing I can say about evangelical purity culture, it's that it's a perfect cover for the shy and socially awkward. <laughs> it's not that I can't get a date, you see. I'm choosing not to date. It's the fundamentalist Christian version of having a girlfriend that lives in Canada. <laughs> I was homeschooled with the fundamentalist Christian curriculum, so in addition to a science education tantamount to God did it, so shut up, and a highly delayed understanding of what sarcasm is, I came of age with a very limited understanding of sex. I did not have the luxury of an awkward and dry sex ed class like you heathen public schoolers. I never heard locker room half-truths from upperclassmen. I was not able to work like forensic scientists with my friends to piece together a working model of sex based on what little we saw from TV and the jokes we heard our dads say. I was on my own in a house full of only Christian books. Our encyclopedia didn't even have pictures. 
I knew boobs had something to do with it because I was made to cover my eyes whenever we saw them in police academy movies. <laughs> but outside of that, all I really ever knew of sex growing up was that it was very, very wrong until you were married and then it was good somehow. My first experience with pornography came when I was 12. It was in an abandoned Sunday school classroom during an all-night prayer meeting. One of the deacon's sons ripped out a page of a magazine he had found in the woods. I did not understand what I was looking at, but my body did. I felt revulsed and ashamed and titillated and obsessed. I wanted to find more, but knew of no way to do so. This being before the internet, my only recourse was the public library where I would secretly look at the pictures of National Geographic and pour through volumes of love poetry in the hope that at least one would be about sex. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a laugh of recognition, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was not very successful, but did develop a lasting fondness for Elizabeth Barrett Browning. <laughs> When I was 14, the movie Showgirls came out and briefly captured the nation's attention as the first NC-17 movie to gain a wide release in theaters. It captured my attention because I had the biggest crush on Jesse Spano from Saved by the Bell, <laughs> if you don't know. So smart, so forceful. I did not fully understand why at the time, but I wanted her to push me around the way she did AC Slider. Being a good pastor's household, we did not have HBO, but I discovered that if you turned the TV to the channel, you could hear the audio and even sometimes make out images through scrambled pictures. Every night after my parents went to bed, I would watch scrambled images of an unarguably horrible movie with breathless anticipation of the chance to see something, anything. It was one of these nights that I had my first orgasm. I had been experimenting with masturbation from time to time for a few months prior, but had always stopped out of fear whenever things started to feel particularly good. That much pleasure had to be sin. But that night, with basically only the audio of one of Elizabeth Berkeley's poorly acted sex scenes, I was not able to contain myself. Being in a dark room with still no knowledge of sex, I had no idea what had just occurred. I was certain that the warm fluid now covering my hands was blood. I had somehow broken myself. In terror and guilt and shame, I woke my mom up and told her she had to take me to the hospital. It took me an hour before I was finally able to explain what had happened. She prayed for me and told me not to do it again. I vowed to myself I never would. Again, these last recognition. It's good to, good to get it out. Over the next several years, I became obsessed with sex. Or rather, I was obsessed with not thinking about sex. I went to True Love Weights rallies and purity dinners. I wore a gold ring adorned with a cross on my wedding finger as a reminder that whenever I had a lustful thought, I was committing adultery on my future wife. I wrote her letters, promising to remain pure and weepingly repentant for every time that I wasn't. I joined accountability groups and prayer meetings. I began researching chemical ways to kill the libido and felt pangs of jealousy when I learned about eunuchs and the chemically castrated. St. Benedict, a fourth century monk who threw himself into a patch of briars and nettles as a way to resist sexual arousal was a hero of mine. I prayed to have courage like his, yet my hormones always eventually won out. I can never resist for longer than a few weeks at most, a remarkable feat for most boys but still one I saw as a dismal failure. 
My travel mates and I spent the first two weeks of this trip traveling through the Bible Belt in the Deep South, where the most prominent billboards are either a sorrow-eyed Jesus warning against abortion or glossy, lingerie-clad women with parted lips advertising a porn store on some deserted country road 30 miles away. It reminded me of the correlation that the regions with the highest percentages of Christians is also the region with the highest usage of porn. It also reminded me of my own futile struggles to resist resist such places while driving through Texas, first as a Bible student, and then also as a traveling minister. Whenever I would see such a billboard, I would begin an earnest and fervent bout with spiritual warfare. I would beg and plead with God for the strength to resist. I would play worship music. I would speak in tongues. I would cast out and bind the spirit of lust. I would always still take the exit and go inside. Guaranteeing that for the next several hours there would be actual, literal weeping and self-harm as I would beg God to forgive me for my weakness. During the summer of my first year at Bible school, my parents got the internet at home. This began a cycle for me of staying up all night. The first half in giddy, curious, lust-filled excitement. The latter half in a state of deep, self-hating, shameful repentance. My accountability group became little more than a way of sharing tips and secrets disguised as prayer requests. My walk with God has really suffered since I discovered this new free porn site, one of us, one of us would confess while the rest took notes. <laughs> How do you delete your history? Like, that's crazy that you can... What's... What do you... Incognito, huh? <clears throat> I'll pray for you. Um, I did not know this then, but porn, as Faye Weldon once said, shows everything and tells nothing. I knew nothing of a woman's pleasure or how to give it to her, nor anything about the magnetic cosmic pool of attraction, the ecstasy of intimacy, the rapture of being lost in passion. It barely taught me anything of my own capacity for pleasure. It was always secret, furtive, shameful, and quick, like a starving man eating stolen bread. Porn is pure junk food. There's no nutrition there. No savoring. My parents once discovered what I was doing online, and even though I had not so much as held a girl's hand, they believed that I was a sex addict. And even though I was looking at straight porn, my predilection to talk with my hands and my love of musical theater must have convinced them that a gay conversion camp was what I needed. After all, we believed all sexual perversions were the same. I was able to talk them out of it, but I regretted doing so. I needed the help. I was an addict. I couldn't stop. No amount of prayer or fasting or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at church helped at all. I was sick. I was a pervert. I was the chief of all sinners. And I believed I was alone. Outside of my accountability group, no one ever talked about struggling with sex. I was certain that my friends and I were the only ones. And even then, because we all lied about the frequency of our sin, I was certain I was the only one who couldn't control himself. This deeply impacted my relationships with women. If I had a crush on someone or discovered that someone had feelings for me, I would instantly remind myself of how dirty and depraved I was. We were taught that women were pure, that they had no desire for sex. What they wanted was romance and emotional intimacy. So the fact that I was guilty of merely entertaining the idea of sex instantly disqualified me from their affections. If they knew, they would flee. They should flee. I was a monster. The day after I lost my virginity at age 23 to my girlfriend, I was surprised and deeply confused to discover that she wanted to have sex again. I assured her that I was committed to her and we didn't have to. I would just give her emotional intimacy for free. 
The idea that a woman would ever desire me completely blew my mind. It still does. To this day, I still feel deep embarrassment and shame whenever I feel lust or desire for anyone. I know it isn't the case, but I can't seem to shake the fear that women will see my sexuality as nothing more than repulsive and predatory. And God knows that can be the case far too often. Our sexuality is a basic and primal need, and it will be expressed in one way or another. If it is repressed the way the church teaches us to do, it will surface in distorted, cruel, and harmful ways. I have lost count of how many youth pastors that I personally know who have had sex with teenage girls from their church. Studies have shown that the evangelical role contains just as many, if not more, sex offenders and cover-ups of said sex offenders as the Catholic Church. But because there isn't one giant corporate body to cover it up, these numbers are easier to hide. Right after I graduated from Bible school, I was given the opportunity to pastor a church. The previous pastor, who was also a school teacher, was caught with a computer full of child porn. I turned the position down. As a sometimes masturbator, I believed I was in no better of a moral position and would only continue to disappoint the church. All perversions are the same. Since leaving the church, I've heard countless stories from women raised in the same culture that I was. I have learned how much worse it was for them to be relegated to little more than objects to be protected or defiled. I have heard how many felt weird and freakish for simply feeling horny. I have heard how many were insulted and assaulted and defamed by the so-called holy men that they had put their trust in. I have seen how the church covers it up, ignores their stories, attacks them for speaking out. And we don't need this last week's news to remember that this is not just a problem with the church. Though, fuck the 48% of evangelicals who said that they'll support Kavanaugh even if he's guilty. Amen. Fuck them. Amen. Spiritual values, traditional that wasn't right. <laughs> now I have to find where I was. <clears throat> Our entire culture feeds into these same problems, but the church, which should somehow be separate and transcendent of our culture, has shown time and time again that it is just as bad and corrupt as anywhere else. Its day of reckoning will come. It is long overdue. The philosopher Bertrand Russell has said that the church takes virtue and makes it vice. That our sexuality, which is natural and beautiful and a delightful things, becomes forbidden and sinful and twisted. It's done as a matter of control. Us good boys and girls raised in Christian bubbles so far from the sins our parents knew had to have brand new sins invented for us. We were condemned to hell for eternity by nothing more than our thoughts, our hormones, our curiosity. We are convinced that our thoughts, our very natures, the deepest core of our beings are horrible and corrupt and satanic. So much worse for our beloved queer and trans family. They want us broken and ashamed. It's how the church keeps us in the pews. But I also think the church is just a little bit jealous. Because there's no greater spiritual joy, no more powerful connection, nothing that elevates the human spirit more than pure, unrestrained sexuality. Sex is not a transaction, not some bargaining chip to turn in when the price is right. It should not be a one-sided endeavor. It is a dance. It is transcendence. It is a beauty that even the best poets fail to describe. It is a death and resurrection, a chance to find yourself by giving it away. No worship service, no devotion, no heaven could possibly compete. 
I can see why they hid it from me for so long. Thank you. Keep it going for Ryan Connell, everybody. Yeah, Ryan, those were definitely laughs of recognition, at least on my part, I could say. Um, so I was uh, intending on giving uh, a quick little reading from uh, the novel Carnality 2 for you tonight, but I think like a lazy substitute teacher, I'm going to skip the lesson and just go straight to a video instead, because uh, I'm really excited to get uh, our next uh, group of characters up here with me. Um, so this is the trailer for Carnality 2. Uh, if you didn't pick up from the first one, it's all narrated by this guy who's living alone on an abandoned island, and uh, it's not really clear why he's there. We figured that out in the later books. There are six of them, by the way. And uh, for the first book, like I said, I love to talk about what it's like to grow up in the environment of apocalypticism, end of the world. Uh, and this is sort of along the theme of uh, Ryan's reading, what it's like to grow up as... Um, um, a queer person whose fame has suddenly exploded due to his anti-gay rhetoric. Uh, it's something that anyone familiar with evangelical culture knows uh, it has happened uh, once or twice before. Um, so if we could hit the lights one more time. Uh, and yeah, I hope I will. In the 90s, evangelical culture was loaded with contradictions. Sexual lust was said to come from Satan, yet the Christian rock industry pulsed with eroticism. Worldliness was said to be an abomination, yet Christian alternatives to secular bands were an essential tool for spreading the gospel. Millions of devil worshippers were said to be raping children and animals throughout the country. Point to satanic evidence in the drug-related murder crimes were motivated by occult beliefs. Yes. But the few self-proclaimed Satanists were actually just satirical atheists, pretending to worship the villain of the Bible. The, the devil has always been the church's best friend because he's kept him in business. They were the original trolls of Christianity. There's nothing cool about a fool on drugs. Drug use <sighs> and gay sex were said to be the tickets to hell. So we don't have to debate about what we should think about homosexual activity. It's written in the Bible. But when I became a teenage Christian pop star, I quickly discovered that these forbidden fruits were the cornerstones of many evangelical diets. Reverend Ted Haggard said in an interview today, I called him to buy some meth, but I threw it away. And did you ever have sex with him? I went there for a massage. I have sinned against you, my Lord. Looking back years later, as I live alone in an abandoned island hotel, I can see that even as a teenage boy who'd built a career as an anti-gay preacher, who believed that gay sex would lead to an eternity of torment in hell, I was willing to risk it all for the privilege of touching Sebastian Phoenix. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton, thieves. Wild cord on my sleeve Thick heart stone My sins my own They belong to me Me
congrats, everybody. I don't know if you'd call it like that split second uh, uh, clip of the Christian boy band plus one. Uh, but one of the members of that band was actually Alessandra's cousin. Fun facts. And, and the, the clip of uh, uh, Kevin Max from DC Talk next to uh, Liam Gallagher of Oasis um, was something that's been on my mind for a long time because he wore the exact same outfit that Liam wore at this very fa famous Oasis concert. But he actually, uh, uh, Kevin Max saw the trailer and reached out to me on Twitter and admitted that he did kind of steal Liam Gallagher's style. Uh, and and he, we ended up uh, uh, striking up a conversation, and he had a lot of interesting things to say about the culture that made him famous that he is no longer um, too proud to be associated with. But that's a whole other conversation in and of itself. I think um, I personally would really like to uh, welcome to the stage uh, uh, two very good friends of mine. Um, that a lot of people in this room are probably familiar with. Uh, they are kind of the uh, apostles of uh, evangelical Christianity. Uh, graduated from being Moses. <laughs> 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 yeah, maybe you're the Moses and you're the Apostle Paul of this. Uh, we'll, we'll get it all figured out uh, before the night's over. Uh, so please welcome to the stage Blake Chastain and Christopher Stroop. So thanks everybody for coming. Um, this is a great turnout. And uh, what we're gonna do here initially is I'm, I'm gonna ask some questions to Josiah sort of about his work. And then um, then we'll also uh, talk a little bit with Chris as well. And then open up to a little bit of commentary and Q&A from you guys if you have any, any thoughts that you'd like to add to anything that was shared. Thank you also to Ryan and Alessandra for, for your discussion as well. Um, One more time for Ryan and Alessandra. Yeah. Aren't those amazing? Oh, my God. Really powerful. Great stuff. So the three of them uh, have undergone, actually, many trials and tribulations to get here. They, they, uh, uh, so they, they started, um, we, we met up with them first in, in September and then in Florida, and then shortly thereafter, you lost you lost the use of your car. Your car broke down. It exploded. It exploded. <laughs> Just outside of Orlando. Yeah. So, um, but but we're really glad you made it here to uh, to Chicago. Um, but I'd, Josiah, I'd like to hear a little bit more about where you're from. Like uh, like your main character in the books, um, you were also raised in Iowa. So mm -hmm. and in this sort of Pentecostal tradition. So what was growing up? Um, like and what what's and are there any other sort of similarities that, that you brought into your character of Jacob? Um, yeah, I mean it's an incredibly autobiographical story with some exceptions. I like to say it's like one third autobiographical, one third other people's stories that I've collected uh, as a journalist covering this community, and then one third just kind of like blue sky imagination. Um, the parents aren't really uh, my parents. They those were kind of the characters that I had the most fun with in terms of just being these really psychotic characters. My parents are <laughs> nothing like them. Uh, my dad's actually in the audience tonight. I wasn't sure if I wanted to point him out or not. He's actually a great guy, and you really shouldn't evaluate him by the, the dad in the Carnality books. Um, but I, I often like to say that, um, you know, uh, you can have a completely accurate uh, representation of an image with a photograph, or you can have an emotional representation of an image with a painting and this book is kind of like a painting of um, the the emotional landscape 
of my childhood. So I grew up in Clear Lake, Iowa, the town that killed Buddy Holly. Uh, next door was uh, the uh, where the Music Man comes from in Mason City. Uh, both towns are very proud of these facts for some unknown reason because they're really not all that flattering. Um, <laughs> I played Winthrop and the Music Man when I was 10 years old. Oh, yeah? Did you get the lisp? <laughs> At Beaver Dinner yeah, Theater in Indianapolis. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, at that time, uh, in the late 80s and 90s, there was a kind of rapture fever that was uh, ratcheting back up after it cal uh, calming down uh, in the 70s because, uh, spoiler alert, their prophecies didn't come to pass. Uh, the world didn't end in 1988, but uh, we certainly thought it was going to end in the year 2000. Uh, Y2K was a big thing for me and a lot of other survivalist evangelicals. And we had the books, uh, the Left Behind books, uh, that were, you know, really uh, gearing up that kind of urgency for the end of the world. So I was raised in a generation that was told we would never see adulthood. We would never have families. We would never grow up. The end was going to come. The mark of the beast, the tribulation. There were arguments about if you're pre-tribulation or post-tribulation. And, you know, there was variation on that. But we really believed that we would either be raptured up or suffer some kind of really horrible torment, pestilence, uh, war, um, before puberty, really, uh, is at least what I was told. And that's kind of the same thing that Jacob grapples with in the first book. Uh, he's on an isolated farm with a schizophrenic father that really thinks the end is any day now. And with childhood, there are always misinterpretations of end times prophecy. You know, you come home and no one's there and you think that the rapture's happened. Uh, that's something I've heard about so much from other people who've read these books or uh, are familiar with my work. They they all like have that same touchstone of like, I came home, there was no one there. I started calling people to find out the rapture really happened. And that, that really freaks you out as a little kid. And, yeah. When yeah. we trended the hashtag rapture anxiety on Twitter, a lot of people said they thought they were the only one who mm -hmm. like, had this experience of, you know, they can't find their parents and they think the rapture happened. Turns out there are a whole bunch of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My high school biology and AP biology teacher, by the way, was always predicting the rapture. Like, he would be like, probably going to happen this year around Yom Kippur. <laughs> <laughs> I had him for two years. He said totally. that both years. I think he said that <laughs> every year. Totally within the realm of biology class. <laughs> Why not? So, so actually, sort of riffing off a of rapture here, let's let's talk about hell, because that's actually sort of this obsessive topic for Jacob in the books. Is this, and for his father in in the first book, um, there's this there's this dominating sort of fear of hell. What what was that sort of like for you? And when was the first sort of point when you were made of the made aware of the idea of hell and how did it sort of manifest in in your early faith and and subsequently like what do you think about it now I, I have no memory of being introduced to it because it's sort of like asking when did you first learn about money? Like, it's just always been around there. When did you learn about cars? Like, it, it's just, uh, it was part of the fabric of my childhood. And probably an no more than an hour passed without me thinking about hell uh, until the age of 17, 18. I mean, when you think about eternity, you know, a difficult concept to get your head around anyway, and then add torture to it, like... What's more important than that? What's more important than avoiding eternal torture? I mean, if I told you guys in this room that there's a whole army of people that are going to storm in here in 15 minutes and torture us, even for an hour, we'd all kick over our seats and, you know, urgently run out the door. And you add sin to that, and you're not really sure what a sin is or what salvation is. What's the ticket out of this? 
you don't know. And so you get this hypervigilance of like, what am I doing? And, and then that um, um, passage in the book of Mark uh, about the unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's pretty vague. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? It can't be forgiven. Did I do it in my head? Did I think a blasphemous thought about the Holy Spirit? Am I done? Is there no turning back? Been there. Right. <laughs> like that's motivating. You know, absolutely. That yeah. if you want a system of control, like tell people they're going to be tortured forever if they don't do what you say, especially children, because that'll that'll stick. Yeah. Another another really common theme in your book is this sort of, and we even saw it in your uh, in your trailers here was this sort of um, this balance of like this differentiation between secular and Christian culture. Like, and how did, did you feel as a kid or as a teenager that you had to develop, like, two different senses of, like, two distinct cultures? Like, there was your Christian one that, you know, you had DC Talk, and then uh, then you, there was also, you know, you... I have a distinct memory of listening to Gin and Juice in the parking lot with my sister, and it was amazing. Like, uh, and it was, like, sort of life-changing. But, you know, that was sort of, like, you, you develop these two different cultural skills was yeah. that something that 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 you sort of became more aware of later as you were writing these books or was it also just sort of in the air you breathed like both of them at the same time i think you you can articulate it as an adult looking back on it the way you can't when you're a kid but yeah. uh fear yeah. was a huge factor in that as well because we had supernatural warfare mm -hmm. i believe that listening to secular music was literally opening your soul to possession of by a demon you know, or, or your thoughts uh, could be Satan speaking to you in your head. So there were periods, I, I went through periods of being into secular music, MTV was on, I'd get into it, but then I'd go to church camp and learn about supernatural warfare, get freaked out and burn all my CDs and uh, all my tapes, and then, you know, just go to the Christian bookstores. And I went through a phase of being into Christian punk rock where I didn't know that punk rock existed outside of Christianity. Uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> I was into like all the tooth and nail bands without knowing anything about the Clash or the Sex Pistols or I remember and, and I would get the sensation from the music um, that I interpreted as the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And then when I discovered Green Day and Blink-182 and I would get that same sensation, that charge in my belly, like I want to skateboard to it. I'd be like, well, how does that work? They're, they're singing about weed and sex and, you know, the, can that be the Holy Spirit that's speaking to me? No. It's, and then that was just confusing. Um, but yeah, I went through a, a long period of time of vigilantly only listening to Christian rock. And it becomes a pretty good industry. It's a pretty good racket because you get parents who don't want to buy Green Day for their kids. And they're like, oh, who's MXPX? Right. You know, this I used is... to work in a Christian bookstore and we had the comparison charts. Right. Yeah. Can I just you say like... that um, Green Day Dookie was my first secular <laughs> album? And I, kinda, and I bought it with a friend that I'd made when I was in public school for half a year when we moved from Indiana to Colorado Springs. And I kind of quasi hid it from my parents. <laughs> Maybe we should collectively write Billy Joe Armstrong a letter and tell him <laughs> what, what impact he had on our childhoods spiritually. Um, yeah, uh, I had that same thing, you know, like, you like Marilyn Manson? Well, try Clank. You know, right. try Zayo. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. Um, another another uh, thing that you really develop is this this really palpable sense of dread. And I don't think I was ready like I've read some things that are in this sort of like psychological horror genre where it's 
things like Stephen King, and he's developing this atmosphere of dread. But I wasn't ready when I was reading your books for it to be so freaking personal because you're drawing on these evangelical fears. Um, and I this is more of a comment than a, than a question, to be sure. honest, because because that, that is something that um, that I think was really really unexpected and um did you draw on some of the things from other from other horror writers or anything or horror could i just chime in quickly and just sort of like agree yeah um you know when josiah sent me a copy of carnality one and i started reading through i was like wow it was hitting me really hard and i and he was a good sport because he wanted me to read it and like talk about it but i could not read it quickly and i was struggling with pretty bad depression through this period so i finally did read it and i was like damn that is an extremely well written book but it was um you know kind of i just i had to be in the right mental space to read something that powerful mm-hmm. yeah uh, i mean i had a lot to draw on personally cuz like as i've been saying i was pretty freaked out uh, through a lot of my childhood, so I could tap into that. But I, I'm a big fan of Stephen King, uh, Brett Easton Ellis, uh, J.T. Leroy, uh, really dark stories of childhood trauma. Um, it's just something I gravitate towards. And if you can throw humor in there, I think uh, you're a literary wizard. Um, and that's kind of what I strive for, is like to, yeah, to go yeah. to these dark places, but then have a little one-liner in there that'll uh, uh, pick it up. But... It's it's exhausting, you know, you talk about reading it, like, I mean, writing it is just, um, I go into a little bit of depression uh, and, and and freak myself out. Like, when I uh, wrote the first one, I was living in a cabin in, in the mountains, uh, you know, uh, like the Shining style, I think, that, you know, it was going for. And then for the, the second one, um, I was also in a cabin in the mountains, like, for half of it, I wrote a, uh, Hunter Thompson's uh, ranch, uh, his, his widow uh, is a fan of Suspect Press, and she invited me out there, um, to do writer's retreat, but for the second half, I went into my childhood home, where my mother is still there, uh, in the in the house that I grew up in, and I, I'd write it late at night, and like looking out into the backyard, you know, where I'd slept walked uh, as a kid, or or in the basement when I'd, you know, heard so many things chasing after me up the stairs. It, it was um, easy to get back into that headspace of mm. just like, what was that? Did you hear that? You know, like uh, in the middle of the night, <laughs> right. any little sound uh, can get the hairs in the back of your neck standing up. And then yeah. if you can get that into the prose, there's uh, some magic there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you really do capture it. Um, the, the final sort of question and comment I have before we turn it over. And Chris, if you have anything as well. But one of the other things that, that struck me both about about your work as well as um, as well as the, the other readings this evening was exploring this like a sense of uh, not only just a duality of like cultures, but also between like physicality. Like, there's so much of your book that is about sort of becoming aware of your body, um, and I think that's something that um, that evangelicals are not prepared for, <laughs> and um, because there's this sort of juxtaposition between the body negative sort of spirituality of Jacob's father. Uh, and then, but then, your your main character is like going through puberty and like figuring things out and sort of discovering. He himself. likes boys. <laughs> yeah, there's all yeah. these things that are happening, and um, what that is another element of sort of this evangelical culture that we're all sort of processing that I think is really well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's um, 
you know, terrifying and traumatic on its own level. But I, I also wanted to write a somewhat erotic book. And I, I love the kind of literary tool of repression as eroticism, that, that so much is at stake and you better not. And if you do, it means you really, really want to or you're, you're incapable of, of resisting. And, and that's a fun thing to build up over a period of chapters uh, with these characters. And and then you throw in uh, the supernatural warfare element of it. Is this my body? Is this me that's experiencing it? Or is it a demon that's inside of me that's giving me these sensations? Hell is at stake. Eternal torture is at stake. And and as uh, you know, Jacob says in this trailer, like he knows about hell. He knows about the eternal torture. And yet, in spite of all of that, he is going to kiss this boy because it's just uh, beyond his control. And there's something kind of beautiful about that, but then kind of horrifying about that. And it was it was a lot of fun and disturbing to explore uh, from the narrator's perspective. Yeah. Well, I, we've actually got about a little less than 15 minutes before the store closes. So if um, anyone either has any comments, or Chris, if you have any, any comments about the book or anything else this evening. Um, I don't have too much to add at this point. I think it could be good to open it up to a public discussion. I'll just say um, I did an interview with Josiah from my Ex-Evangelical Conversations series uh, on my website at chrisdroop.com. So if you want to see that, we, we talk about the first book. I haven't read the second book yet, but I'm definitely going to. Uh, I think the eroticism he's describing is going to be more appealing to me than the first book. <laughs> People do describe it as more of an adventure book than the horror, uh, the first one. But, but the first book is really good, and everybody should read it. It just, for me, was like I had to read it very slowly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, from both your perspectives, what it's like to do uh, an ex-evangelical event, uh, something that's offline and face-to-face -face with people, and, and how important that is. Yeah. Um, you know, we the first one that we did was in Clearwater, Florida, on September 8th, and mm -hmm. um, I think that we both and the other people there that were involved with it felt like it was a very positive thing, um, you know, and we worked to make that an inclusive thing as we try to do an evangelical community in general. Um, and so we had queer people and women of color represented on the panel. And But yeah, I think that when you do this kind of stuff in person instead of um, only online, it, there's, there's a different feeling. And I think there's the potential to develop a kind of positive feedback loop between those two things. Mm -hmm. um, when people see something visible in the community as like a kind of grassroots experience, then that can be inspiring to build more local communities. Uh, people in those local communities can discover what we do online and vice versa. Um, so I think that if we want to become, you know, a kind of community that really can change national conversations and maybe can influence things for the better, then we want to be seeing more of these offline events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I also echo, echo those same sentiments. Um, we, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to do more of these sorts of events as part of the podcast, as well as uh, promoting others. Um, this I, that I do think is sort of central to um, the community at large is that it's intended to not just be about you know white guys like me that left evangelicalism you know it's the the community at, at large is is much more diverse and representative of that and anything that that i can do personally to sort of um 
center those those conversations and make those things available is is really important and that i think will include a lot of things relative to having more local events um promoting more things uh, promoting one another's projects and and having these in life uh, in in person events will be a key part of that and that's one thing that yeah. I like about the evangelical community is that, you know, we don't look at it in a competitive way at all. But as a rule, I mean, I think we're really promoting each other's work quite quite a bit because we want to be seen and heard. And we do that as a community, you know, not as a handful of leaders or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Books. Yeah. yeah. Books were huge. Meeting other people. Uh, for me, learning the history of the Bible was a big one. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. learning the Gospels were written like 60, 90 years after Jesus' death by people who weren't there, didn't speak to anyone who's there, didn't speak the language that was spoken there. We don't know who wrote most of the Old Testament. Uh, it was assembled by a bunch of dudes with political motivations over centuries, and they left out other books. And you know, it, that was huge for me, is just losing faith in the Bible. What about you guys? Um, for, for me, it was a, uh, the initial sort of, uh, one of the sort of terms that, that, that we use, uh, that many people use, is this term deconstruction. So you start to, to examine your faith and, and determine that you don't agree with that, you, what you were taught, and that's commonly called deconstruction. Um, one, of, one of the things that, for me, uh, was these sort of two things t that happened simultaneously. One was also like I, I went to college, to a Christian college, because I thought I wanted to be a pastor and I studied Greek. And um, I didn't sort of, I didn't even know that I had subconsciously believed that the Bible was like inerrant. And that just doesn't, that, that argument just doesn't hold water when you look at the original languages. Um, and subsequent, Simultaneous with that um, was also the run-up to the war in Iraq. And so my actual um, religious convictions were becoming more pacifist in orientation, but I was at a conservative Christian college that was, like, drumming the beats of war. Um, so those things sort of combined to create a, a crisis of faith that, that sort of started the process. But one one sort of aspect of, of leaving this type of all-consuming belief system and and community is that that you often have to process different things at different times in your life. Um, and that can be a long process. Uh, evangelicalism is a very emotionally abusive ideology. And I don't even, I lost track of the number of times that I would go down to altar calls and rededicate my life to Christ, you know, and try to save my faith and be a better Christian. I think I kind of burnt myself out on it in some ways. I did have intellectual issues starting when I was around 16 and I read the entire Bible through for the first time. But then I was also afraid that maybe th these doubts were actually coming from literal demons and I had somehow opened myself up to demonic influences. I mean, a pastor point blank told me that. 
So I wrestled with um, this kind of doubt and the fear of rocking the boat. Uh, I'm an oldest child of two children. I didn't want to rock the boat with my family. Um, but I was drifting very far from them politically in, in some ways through my college years. I mean, the first presidential election I voted in was 2000, and I thought that I had to vote for George W. Bush because of abortion. And um, But I, I already felt deeply ambivalent about that at best. And I voted for John Kerry in 2004. And I just kind of tried to hold on to it so as not to alienate my family, but eventually I couldn't anymore. And, um, you know, it also became about um, LGBT rights. And then, you know, only only later, and this coincided with when I finally stopped being afraid of hell, um, which I stopped believing in hell long before I stopped having this visceral fear of it, which I've also learned is a pretty common experience, uh, is that I recognized, and I, I don't think I had to recognize it as a child because I am attracted to women, but that I'm queer myself. And that, you know, not only do I not really feel any great sense of identification with maleness or masculinity, but I can uh, be attracted to men and to people of different genders. Uh, that was a big revelation that came, that I, you know, had happened only in my mid-30s. And then I was like, oh, this makes so much more sense now that I could, <laughs> that I could not stay in this subculture. <laughs> yeah, it often takes a long time to get out of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, does anyone else have a quick question? I think we do need to wrap things up uh, in a sec. But anyone else? We all good? Cool. Uh, well, I'm going to be hanging out, uh, signing books if anyone wants to buy one. And I think we're going to do some kind of meetup uh, after this place closes, right? Yeah, yeah. We're either, we're going to do one of the spots, uh, probably either Lula or Merchant, one of the spots right here on this block. Yeah. So. If anyone wants to hang out, have a drink yeah. with us. We're around. Thanks for coming, everybody. Thanks. God go.